BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Matt Splained. My name is Rich Bradbury. Now, um, what's in a word? Today, we're asking how a 19th century form of, of leisure and entertainment became the cover for data mining and keeping tabs on our every online move. Do you mean browsing? Yeah. Well, look, I know <laughs> words are boring, but that's what I want to talk about. Browsing, I want to talk about where the term came from and what the term has come to mean and mm. how that kind of historical meaning of the word kind of blinds us to the things that it's come to uh, represent. So let me set the scene with a question. Okay. You know, when was the last time you wandered around somewhere aimlessly? It could have been, it could have been window shopping in a mall it could have been just walking around the streets i don't know losing yourself in an art gallery and it's not an accusation by the way it's just uh you know it's just about behaviors mm -hmm. when was the last time that you wandered aimlessly and without worrying about you know the time about worrying about a clock do you know i genuinely can't Remember, I think all, it may have almost been in, in Bali a couple of years ago, but I think even then I was concerned about whether I was going to get back in time for my dinner. <laughs> no, I th but that's that's the thing. I, I, know, I know you're laughing because it sounds trivial. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah and trivial. But, yeah, um, but I'm kind of the same. You know, as, as regular listeners will know, I've spent a bit more time back in the UK in my hometown this mm. year and you know partly thanks to the much colder climate i did a lot more walking around than i do here so you know i would just go out and, and wander but even then that wandering tended to be quite targeted you know i'd be walking to a destination for example so i'd be going to the supermarket on foot rather than driving there or i'd say you know i'd take a, a certain time slot for right. a walk i think there was maybe one day during the trip where i went to cambridge i had no agenda and because it's a city i know quite well i wandered off into bits that i didn't know into the the Ooh. kind of wilder bits Ooh. yeah uh, and when i say wilder bits you know i'm not talking about the mean streets of cambridge i'm gonna um, say it doesn't because, sound like there is such a thing <laughs> no i don't i don't think cambridge has you know its back streets um <laughs> But it literally has wilder bits. It's got protected wildland that's in the center of the city. The area is mm. called the Backs. Mm -hmm. And it's not a park. It's just streams and rivers and common grazing land. So, you know, you can just wander around. And there are horses and all kinds of stuff just wandering around grazing. You know, yeah. you can still see and hear the cars because roads crisscross it. But at the same time, you forget that you're just you know, a five or 10 minute walk from all of those universities and, and the shopping center. And that was, you know, probably the last time that I just wandered aimlessly browsed. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's nice that you're sharing your, your love of nature and it's nice to see that other side of you. And, um, you know, there's uh, perhaps some human in you after all, but unless they, those were like robot ponies, um, I'm, I'm kind of struggling to see where you're going with this. 
I would have quite liked it if they'd been robot ponies. I mean, that would really have tickled me. But um, no, as I said, this is, you know, it's behavioral. Um, in my own life, you know, much as you said, everything I do has, if not a purpose, at least a clock yeah. running against it. And I know that's always been a, a quirk I've had, running life to a timer. But it's something that I know a lot of people do. We schedule everything. Mm -hmm. And don't worry, this isn't going to turn into one of those inbox zero type stories. Um, but just to, to, again, setting the scene, I, I had a, a, I was at my local mall last Sunday evening. It was mobbed. And people just seemed to be aimlessly browsing, you know, mm. families, groups of friends. They were doing normal things, looking in shop windows. They were just, you know, buying snacks. Uh do you want to call them sheeple? I mean, I'm still struggling with this. No, it's, again, not a sheeple thing. You know, everyone was just doing normal stuff. They looked relaxed. Nobody was rushing, uh, except for me, because I had lots of frozen stuff that was rapidly melting. I'd, I'd left my cooler bag in the car. Um, but, you know, it's just my perception of things that everyone else was relaxed. I don't know what mm. was going on in in their heads, what inner timetable or clocks that they were all working to. But as far as I could see, they were browsing. So, you know, we keep circling back to, to this word, and that's because I, I read a, a really cool piece on Wired that got me thinking about the idea of what browsing is and mm -hmm. how it's actually changed. Now, if you want to read the article, uh, it's called Your Internet Browser Does Not belong to you. It's written by uh, a writer called Susanna Schauler. It's maybe a seven minute read, um, but it covers a lot of the things that we talk about a lot on the show. Things, uh, you know, subjects like choice, control, and how often these can be something of an illusion. We're back to sheeple. Well, not really. It's more about uh, the, the co-option rather than the evolution of the term and how we're happy to have uh, two kind of simultaneous codes of behavior that apply to the same word. So, again, what do you think about when I say the word browse? What what does the mm -hmm. word mean to you? I, I think, I mean, that um, uh, I would say uh, lucky kind of middle ground between what browse actually means and what browse has come to mean. You know, I'm, I'm from that era where browsing actually meant going into a shop and then we had the invention of the internet. And of course, browsing became something that we do online. And exactly. And that's, I think, what it's synonymous with for, for most people now. You know, it's that app that we head to when we're not using an app tied to a specific browser. Yeah. Uh, sorry, a specific service. And mm. that is a browser. And using a browser is second nature. A lot of us mm -hmm. work in a browser. There's kind of this generational divide between people who access email and spreadsheets and presentations through their, their browsers <laughs> rather than through a, a desktop. Obviously, they're wrong. Um, it, it's <laughs> faster to use a de desktop version. It, it just is, but that's not yep. the point. Yep. It's really about what words mean because they influence the way we think about what they describe. You know, look up the reasons that the security company Blackwater changed its name. How we use words shapes the way we think about the things they represent. Mm -hmm. And that's the point that Susanna Schauler is making in the word piece. So 
Just say again, what did you say browsing meant to you? Well, I, I guess now it, it means surfing the internet, you know, or, or looking through various web pages or, yeah. Yeah. So when we go back into more of the history of what browsing is, so the, the term actually appeared back in the 19th century. It was largely applied to the emerging middle class of the time. Uh, we were f for the first time starting to see things like shopping arcades and department mm -hmm. stores in the US and across Europe. And it was the first mass example of uh, shopping without buying. You could actually just go into a place and either look through the windows of a, a shop or go in and do that thing of, uh, of browsing. So this is uh, a, an unfortunate nod to, to sheeple, but it is unintentional. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, you can describe shoppers as grazers, you know, they're people who have specific items to buy. They go to the place and they eat the mm. grass. So they're mm. grazing. Whereas people who are browsing, maybe they're going to graze, but there's no direct intention. Um, so browsing emerges as this leisure activity. And it's a privilege that we now take for granted, you know, this right to shop without buying and those shopping arcades you know you can kind of think of them as victorian shopping malls it was the first time that we saw this blend of public and private space and as susanna shaula comments you know it, it combined curiosity aspiration consumption with this new idea of of leisure wasn't there something uh, like a, an emancipation angle to it as well yeah, because shopping was seen as a form of entertainment, right. and that made it a socially acceptable reason for women to be out in public, other than being es escorted by their men folk, um, <laughs> or you know, going into the the grocery store. Mm. Um, again, you know, think Victorian mall rats in in tea rooms, and that behaviour has evolved over time as disposable incomes have increased in uh, every class. So now when you walk into a shop, the assistant will ask you if you want any help. And if you say that you're browsing or just looking, they're not going to boot you out of the store because in most instances, they're happy for you to look because you might yeah. see something that interests you, even if you're only bookmarking it to come back later. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. there are, of course, exceptions. We've all got at least one friend who goes into the supermarket just to take the free samples from the promotion people. Uh, they don't ever buy anything. They just drink tiny cups of meat, uh, milk and eat lukewarm sausages dipped in, I don't know, some kind of jam. Um, it's usually the same uh, friend in inverted commas who helps themselves to the leftovers from your plate when you're out for dinner. Okay. That, okay then. But how does that link to the, the modern example? Uh, a web browser. And and Richard's laugh tells me that he also has at least one of <laughs> those friends. Experience, yes. <laughs> so so how does it link to the modern example, the, the web browser? So the word browsing suggests these historical ideas of leisure and choice. But is that really the experience we have when we go online. So I'm not going to go too deeply into the history of the web browser. So the Wired article does that really well. Um, although for some reason, I can't seem to pin down the first time one of these tools was actually called a web browser. So I don't know how we got to that point 
of determining that this was a web browser. Uh, certainly, we know that um, Tim Berners-Lee uh, coined the phrase World Wide Web, I think, in the early 90s. Um, and browsers emerged as this simple way to navigate this early internet. Uh, some of the early browsers or earliest browsers were things like Mosaic, uh, which was one of the first examples that mm -hmm. used a, a, a GUI, graphic user interface, to translate the code into something that was easy to, to look at and access. Um, actually, one of the... Uh, developers of Mosaic was Mark Andreessen, of course, who went on to develop Netscape Navigator and, of course, Venture Capital. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, Netscape Navigator fought one of the early tech wars against Microsoft's Internet Explorer. Um, I think they actually lost that battle. Um, and when we look at today's browser landscape, Google and the Chrome browser obviously are the, the current kind of browser champions. And Microsoft is a contender again? Well, yeah, thanks to its integration of chat GPT into uh, the Bing search engine. Bing. Um, Bing Sorry, can't, yeah, I, I know, can't help I, it. I can't help it either. I do that every <laughs> single time. It's, I don't know, it must drive people mad. Um, but, you know, it's strange. Out of nowhere, Microsoft's Edge browser is suddenly in contention mm. as a major player. So mm. we could be on the cusp of the third browser war. And again, another reason why words matter and something else that the Wired piece points out. One of the key developments in these web wars was the tab in the browser. So we uh -huh. went from being able to, to see one site at a time to yeah. having multiple separate sites in separate windows. I mean, we all remember our desktops being littered with hundreds of different web uh, web windows and then suddenly we just have one window with multiple sites on tabs in one mm. browser mm. uh are you one of those people who litters your machine with tabs that have been open for weeks absolutely not matthew i uh, it, it drives me bananas this and I'll, I'll tell you this now i right in front of me i have two large screens and i have separate windows in each screen even though i could have multiple tabs open i can't do it and i think this comes from um when we were when we were younger and tabs used an awful lot of memory uh, a lot of RAM, you know, it's been ingrained in me to close down the tabs yeah. that you aren't using. No, I know. I recently read something, uh, uh, and the, the journalist said, uh, I think that with their mobile Safari, they had about 500 open tabs, and some of them had been open for years. And, yeah, and, you know, I'm I'm the uh, inbox maximalist, and yes. that just drove me, me spare. Um, untidy inbox tidy browser that's that's me i'm the same of you same as you as soon as it proliferates i'm instantly close all tabs to the right and i just kill everything and if i need anything again i just go to my my search history but when we look at browsers they do so much more than let us access the internet. They store passwords. They store our payment details. Mm. Uh, as I s just mentioned, our search history. Cookies let us jump into websites and continue where we left off, you know, days or even weeks later. But the crucial point about these tabbed browsers is that the word means something. They do exactly that. They keep tabs on us. Uh -huh. Yes, you can empty your search history, but some cookies, as we know, jump 
from site to site. Um, less so, I think, now after you know new data regulations. But all that information is going backwards and forwards to all kinds of places. Algorithms and AI are used to, to personalize those experiences on sites that we visit often, especially the sites that want to sell us stuff, which is pretty much everything, because even when we're consuming information, they're still trying to sell us stuff. Uh, yeah. YouTube is selling you on the ads it shows. So it's not just on commerce sites, you know, like Amazon and, and other retailers. And this is where it differs from 19th century browsing. Uh, yes, obviously the petticoats, corsets and bonnets have uh, largely disappeared. Um, but nothing we do online is casual. You know, it might appear to be do that when you whack something into Bing. There you go, you can say Bing. Bing. Um, every action online is scrutinized and utilized to not only predict, but also influence our future actions. Right. So all of these things that might seem innocuous to us, whether it's browsing a product or reading an article, these are all data points that are fed into these really complex algorithms. Mm -hmm. And these algorithms then curate our future online experiences. And those choices that we make historically guide us in the future towards specific content, towards products, and even to the people whose posts we see in our social feeds. See, we're at 17 minutes. I knew you wouldn't be able to wrap it up in half an episode. Um, we're going to have to have a quick break, uh, but do browse back. Of course, this is Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. It's uh, Netymology 101 with Matt today uh, as we explore the phrase browsing. Uh, we were talking about choices that guide us towards uh, specific content and products. Um, aren't we also being guided, though, when we browse in real life? Yeah, we are increasingly, and I've got a trademark pending on uh, Netymology. Um, I'm claiming that. Um, <laughs> No, increasingly we see stores using all kinds of technology to get a better idea of what we're doing while we're in a store, especially when we go right. into big hypermarkets, you know, um, RFID uh, in our loyalty cards, mm -hmm. uh, cameras inside the stores, entire departments of uh, people and machines that just evaluate, you know, where people go in a store, how long they spend in certain aisles, what items do they pick up and mm. try and figure out why they put them down again, why they don't complete mm. a purchase. And don't forget, a lot of the things we buy have their own RFID tags on them, which are, are deactivated when you purchase. So if you've used one of those RFID checkouts where you don't do anything except put your purchases down and the machine tells you what you owe, one that's completely magic. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> so I think chains like Decathlon and uh, Uniqlo have started doing those in in Malaysia. Yeah, but we are tracked, you know, outside. Uh, we're highly tracked inside the stores, but less tracked outside the stores. Uh, so when we're walking around a, a shopping area or a mall, yes, there's surveillance, but it's a lot less joined up than the experiences you find in a web browser. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it still has, you know, the hallmarks of 
that that 19th century character of being very casual. Uh, you know, if you're walking along a beach, it's unlikely that that's going to be pegged as a data point, uh, unless, of course, you know, you're doing something that logs it as a data point, like taking a photo on your phone or using something that's got GPS activated yeah. through your, your smartphone. Which is part of the growth that we're seeing in, in digital and film camera use again. Partly, you know, I think people want to own the things that, that they take, although, you know, ultimately a lot of those supposedly private images they take on film or digital cameras will get uploaded to social accounts anyway, but that's by the by, at least that's by choice. And that's the key difference. You know, when we browse in the real world, we're largely shaping our own experience. Mm -hmm. When we browse online, that experience is being shaped for us. So I think the Wired piece makes the example of surfing in the 1990s and the early noughties. Um, again, you know, it's another real-life word, surfing, mm. that idea mm. of catching a wave, not knowing where you'd end up uh while we were off air you mentioned windows yeah. um microsoft windows you know that idea of looking onto something and into something and, and mm. through something so all of these words we had for our digital life they were all exciting they made everything seem limitless and it still can be but now surfing is more like surfing in one of those wave pools instead of this vast ocean you're in a pool that's got walls. Yes, you know, there's there's still plenty of choice and entertainment there, but we're not casually exploring anymore. We're being enticed to click. We're being enticed to stay in ways that are a lot more coercive than simply piping the smell of cinnamon rolls into the air. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we're a long way from that historical idea of, uh, I think, browsing just as casual entertainment. Why do you have to mention cinnamon rolls? Um, but it is one of the nicest smelling ways to end a segment that we've had. Now, um, I never know what to call these kind of half and half shows. Well, I'll keep with the food analogy. I mean, I guess we can call it a flat white. Um, that pretty much captures me in all my glory. Um, so I guess we can do a couple of you know weird science pieces to, to round things off. So the first thing yeah. I want to talk about is the best mobile VPNs of 2023. Huh? Nah, I'm just joking. What, what could be more boring than that? <laughs> what? what do you? I was thinking. What? The ironic thing is, just as you said that, I had a reminder pop up on my uh, desktop saying my VPN subscription had expired. Well. Exactly. Um, VPN uh, subscriptions always expire when you need the most. Mine last expired when I went overseas, meaning that I had to subscribe back to it in a much more expensive currency. Anyway, I yeah, digress. Yeah, yeah. But yes, very boring. Let's not talk about that. No. The most boring thing, of course, has to be living forever. So I was going to do a story about the futurist Ray Kurzweil predicting that by 2030, we'll be able to live forever. But while the story is interesting and Kurzweil has a great track record of correctly spotting trends and shifts, I don't mm -hmm. know about you, but I don't want to live forever. Uh, although I do kind of like the idea of nanobots in my bloodstream. That's mm -hmm. kind of cool. But I'd rather the nanobots gave me superhuman abilities rather than just allowing my feeble body to, to live longer. If they could keep me 
you know, in kind of tip top condition, which is obviously better than the condition I'm in now. Um, I could get behind that even if, you know, I just switch off at some point, um, but not really living forever. So you can just Google Ray Kurzweil immortality if you want to know more about this one. So we'll do a, a, a minority report style story instead. Uh, predictive policing or um, your ongoing obsession for that uh, man, uh, Tom Cruise? I do have a rather unhealthy obsession with him. You um, do, yeah. Yeah. It's just the older he gets, the more interesting the, the films he makes up, well, except for the new Mission Impossible. Um, but especially when he does, you know, sci-fi, Minority Report is one of those films that really captured the feeling of something. Obviously, you know, it's Spielberg as well as uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, and since the film's release, I think probably nearly 20 years ago, we've seen law enforcement pretty much take all the wrong cues from it. So mm. instead of getting the hint that trying to predict crimes is a terrible idea, we've had all kinds of leaky and awful systems that misapply artificial intelligence to policing. Uh, things like recidivism calculations that showed bias against people of color based solely on the places they lived. Uh, facial recognition software that, again, tends to work better on light skin and creates false positives for people with darker skin. And let's not even get into the surveillance drones that some police forces use to provide long-term surveillance of the people that live in those cities. Uh, this is the Wired story on the uh, PredPol software developed by uh, Geolitica. Yeah, so Geolitica used to be known as PredPol, predictive policing. Um, and I initially found this story via a piece on the Futurism website, but mm. do go and read the whole piece on, on Wired. Uh, the title might give away the context of the story a bit. Uh, predictive policing software, terrible at predicting crimes. Uh, so, yeah, that's yeah. You know, pretty uh, uh, unambiguous. So the Wired piece find, found out that out of 23,631 predictions made by Geolitica in 2018, less than 100 actually coincided with real crimes. Wow. To the point where the New Jersey police force that was using it, and they were the only force out of something like close to 40 police departments who would actually share the data. Uh, the police force said that because uh, of the level of results they got, they actually seldom used it. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised. It's, it's like a, a success rate of less than half a percent. Well, exactly. So they subscribed to the service because they thought it would help them to allocate resources more efficiently. They thought it would identify what kind of crimes are likely to occur where in a metro area, you know, what times of day or what days of the week. And they'd be able to deploy officers with the requisite skill sets to police those areas. However, it seems that actually the reverse was the case. If the police departments uh, uh, that they surveyed had allocated resources according to the predictions, it would have been no better than chance and would probably have been a waste of resources. Mm. Uh, apparently, the software was particularly bad at predicting burglaries with a, a, an accuracy rate of 0.1%. Wow. Uh, where it fared better, such as robberies or aggravated assaults, it only managed to be accurate about 0.6% of the time. Look, and, and, and if we go back to those, uh, and we spoke about this a lot, the, those ideas of inherent bias, 
it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the algorithm predicts more crime in areas that are already heavily policed due to historical biases. And the cycle continues? Well, yeah. So historical crime data reflects not just where the crimes have occurred, but also where policing has been historically concentrated. So this can disproportionately target certain communities and as you said, it perpetuates this cycle of over-policing and neglecting um, other areas where crimes may be underreported. Mm. Uh, it's a classic case of the algorithm inheriting the biases present in its training data and then, of course, essentially reinforcing those biases and directing more police to areas that it predicts will have crime based on that historical data of over-policing. Right. So in turn, uh, that results in more crimes being recorded in those areas because police come down more heavily on minor infractions as well yeah. as you know the major stuff. And again, this further reinforces the algorithm's future predictions. So it's this vicious cycle that doesn't address the root causes of criminal activity and perpetuates all of those disparities and, and can actually amplify the disparities that already exist in the system. I mean, I, I, I've been hearing that there are some reports that this uh, Geolitica is shutting down at the end of this year. Is that, or could this be the end of uh, predictive policing as we know it? Unfortunately not. You know, there's a number of companies working in the area. I'm not going to name any, but there have been a lot of issues with software-based policing tools, um, listening tools that track where uh, they think gunshots have been fired, um, making reports for police to be deployed based on reports of gunshots, uh, or rather, you know, algorithmic captures of gunshots. Uh, and I don't think that the failure of systems really puts other companies off. It's that startup fallacy. It's right. the idea that the other person's solution wasn't good enough, but ours, ours is. is. Yeah. yeah. And with all the attention on AI tools like chat GPT and frankly because a lot of people misunderstand what these things are and how they work you know as we've said before these things are tools they're not solutions yeah everyone is looking to AI for answers and that includes the police mm -hmm. the problem is that in some instances the answers that the machines create are false. Yeah. Now, that doesn't really matter when you're writing a blog post because, you know, you can put your hands up and say, sorry, I got it wrong and amend it and put a correction in. Mm. But it really matters when you're sending out heavily armed police officers based on bad data or miscalculations. Okay. Um, can we end on something a little bit more upbeat, maybe? Um, okay. A, a short story, but... Um, worth uh, a Google. Uh, NASA has enlisted the help of fashion house Prada for its new spacesuits. Wait, what? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so there <laughs> is actually a tie back to police forces here, weirdly enough, because some Italian forces have uniforms designed by fashion houses like Armani. Oh, yes. But this, um, my, yeah. my, my, my European cousins tell me about this regularly. I know. The Italian police look you know, yes. super stylo. Um, yeah. It's good to be arrested by somebody, you know, who's who's got the look. <laughs> um, 
But this isn't just a, a style issue for, for NASA. So Prada also has a reputation for cutting-edge materials science. Mm. So I'm sure that the eventual suits will undoubtedly look great, but it's actually more for reasons of practicality, reducing bulk, increasing comfort uh, and maneuverability so that astronauts can work for longer uh, in these suits, especially as, you know, with so many space agencies racing to get astronauts back onto the surface of the moon, mm. um, I'm expecting some kind of lunar-influenced catwalk season in uh, in a year or two. Ah, I'd yeah. quite happily see the, the models kind of moonwalking down yeah. the yeah. catwalk. Very cool. Um, but this is, uh, I guess that's not really a story, that's just a, a note. So, Let's round things off with something that I'm definitely not an expert in, football uh, or, or soccer, as uh, some of our listeners might uh, know it better. Wait, hang on. How many shows have we done so far in total? Um, so hundreds. Well, I mean, if hun- you, hundreds, hundreds. I mean, yeah, it must be. I mean, I've been doing this for longer than the Matt's Plane, so thousands. Thousands. Is this the first story we've ever done on football? I, I mean, there might have been one or two others, but there's really not many. I I know that for sure because you know I usually just steer clear because yeah. um, I know nothing. Um, but a, a new study from Dublin City University looks at the way goalkeepers perceive the way uh, perceive the world and process information. Uh, huh. Goalies, look at me using football slang. Uh, goalies are required to make incredibly quick decisions, often with very limited information. God, that sounds like me. Um, so the studies uh, sought to see whether they see the world differently from um, outfield players and, you know, the general Joe public. So the study involved 20 professional goalkeepers, 20 outfield players, and 20 non-players. And I'm very glad you haven't asked me what an outfield player is. Uh, They were subjected to a a test involving uh, visual and auditory stimuli. So they were shown brief flashes uh, on a screen accompanied by beeping sounds. Now, apparently... Mm. um, even though this sounds like an experiment from uh, a, a clockwork orange, um, you know, if I was a science and I, I had a chance to experiment on football players, I'd probably do something like this. Anyway, a, a common phenomenon is that when um, a flash and two beeps are present in quick succession, people often perceive it actually as two flashes because the visual and auditory stimuli actually converge to give this kind of false result let me guess but not goalkeepers no otherwise this story would be goalkeepers are just the same as everyone else which would be (laughs) amusing um no uh goalkeepers were able to accurately determine the number of flashes and beeps with much smaller time intervals between them than the other players and ordinary people this suggests of course that they can process multi-sensory cues um both a lot more precisely and a lot more rapidly. And it indicates that they have this enhanced ability to segregate the processing of auditory and visual information. So they have a particular skill set that suits them to be standing there with someone batting balls at them. Uh, The real question now, and the one that requires more research or sensory torture, if you prefer, is whether this is actually nature or nurture. Is this an innate ability that destines you for a career as a goalkeeper, or is it a skill that you hone 
as you train to be a right. professional goalkeeper. Um, I'm guessing it's probably some kind of innate skill because my school years were marked by people throwing fast-moving projectiles at me uh, and I never developed any talent as a, a goalie whatsoever. <laughs> Which is interesting. Can I just add something here? Because the goalies at my school tended to be the kids that couldn't play football. So they're like, hey, you, go stand in goal. And now you're telling me that goalies could potentially have superpowers? Well, that's the, the way it seems. Uh, I mean, the only one I remember is Bruce Grobler, who used to walk around on his, uh, on his hands. So, you know, he well, was always entertaining. Well, thank you very much for that, Matt. I've learned quite a bit today. Good, I'm now, glad. Yes. That, of course, was this week's episode of Matt's Plane. And if you're interested to find out uh, what Matt is up to, you can find him on X. He's at Culture Matt, of course. Uh, his website is culturepop.com, and his Substack newsletter is culturepop.substack.com. If you missed any part of the show, don't forget to go and download the podcast wherever you normally get it from. I recommend the BFM app. That's where you can listen to it. That is available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. My name is Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. <laughs>